my name is Reese Karolinski, and this is Young History, episode 116 on Tunisia. The capital of this country is Tunis, and the country is named for that capital city, Tunis. And Tunis means something along the lines of laying low encampment, something like that, or like the encampment that lays low. It comes from Old Arabic, so it's definitely a tough one to translate. But the Ia in Tunisia kind of expands the land that is involved in this. So Tunisia is the land of the low-lying encampment. And there's also another layer, which is kind of like something about it being in the night. It's like the encampment that lays low throughout the night. Things of that sort. So that's kind of the whole meaning. It's kind of called that because of the fact that it lays so close to sea level. The city of Tunis, back when it was Carthage, all sorts of those were very much maritime focused. And that's where we get Tunisia from. On top of this, Tunisia is the northernmost African nation, and it is only 155 kilometers, or 96 miles, from the Sicilian coast. Tunisia became the first Arabic nation to get access to the internet in 1994. And Tunisia is the second largest consumer of pasta in the world per capita, of course, and that is only behind Italy itself. On top of pasta-related things, Tunisia is also the third largest exporter of olive oil in the world, and many Tunisians claim that they make the very best olive oil the world has today. So, this is going to be a fun one. The history goes back to some of the very famous times of antiquity, clashes with Rome, all sorts of things like that, so it's going to be very fun, and I'm excited. So, I hope you guys are too, and I'm also very glad you're here. So, I'm just going to say one more time, my name is Reese Karolinski, this is Young History, and this is Tunisia. Let's do this thing. Our origins begin 200,000 years ago in the Stone Age when Berbers slash Alizir people made the region their home. This is the term used to refer to people that are of North African descent that eventually got mixed with Arabic stuff to kind of describe the ones today, but Berber slash Alizir specifically, the ones that are of African descent in this northern African region because the genetics and cultural breakdown are very different than the ones south of pretty much the Sahara, sub-Saharan Africa, because you have that Mediterranean influence and that influenced genetics, culture, all sorts of things like that. And in the 800s BC, Phoenicians moved into the land and became one of the first major groups here. They were able to get here because of their huge naval system, because the Phoenicians came from what is today Lebanon in the Levant. They built the city of Carthage, and Phoenicians brought a lot of great change to Carthage and the area around it. They influenced the language because the Phoenicians are one of the first people to make an alphabet in the world. The naval system was overhauled, and Carthage was expanded as a great base point for the expansion of the Phoenicians across the Mediterranean. Over time, this brought them into conflict, though, with the growing Roman Empire. Roman Carthage clashed for over 100 years in the Punic Wars. They were called this because Punic was the term used by the Romans to describe these people in Latin, and Punic pretty much means Phoenician. For once, a nickname was actually really accurate. You just called them what they were. So it is the Punic Wars. They went on from 264 BC to 146 BC. They were also broken down into three different parts, and we're going to go through all of them right now. So the first Punic War happened from 264 to 241 BC. The naval battles ensued between Carthage and Rome. They were literally the fiercest the Mediterranean had ever seen since probably the Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens of ages before. And it ended with Roman annexation of Sicily and reparations paid by the Carthaginians. And despite the fact that 
the Phoenicians, now known as the Carthaginians, because Phoenicia fell and Carthage did not. Despite the fact that that group was extremely famous for their naval conquest and how great they were in the water and were literally the kings of the Mediterranean at the time, Rome is not to be slept on. They were so great at recruiting and inheriting different styles of fighting and cultures from other people that it made it really hard for anyone to truly stand up to them. And after a short time of peace, Carthage started to expand its empire across most of North Africa and into the Iberian Peninsula. And this expansion brought them into conflict once again with Rome. This caused the Second Punic War, which was fought from 218 to 201 BC. It was during this year that the famous Carthaginian leader Hannibal came to power. His tactics in war were so strong that he was almost able to fully defeat Rome by marching all the way to it. He marched a vast army across the Iberian Peninsula into Italy to clash with the Romans, and part of this army was the famous war elephants. Literally, the fact that the Carthaginians were so close to regions of Africa that had native elephants, they domesticated them and used them for war. And I, I just can't even really fathom slash explain how crazy that is, because not only were they marching elephants across parts of the Alps and across the Iberian Peninsula, which is already crazy enough, but on top of this, imagine your whole life you've only seen horses, war dogs, and like maybe the occasional cat or bird, like farm animals, and all of a sudden you're going to war and you see the largest creature on earth, like at the time, like the largest known creature to anyone, just otherworldly. Despite this, the war was very close, it went back and forth, but Hannibal was eventually defeated and Carthage sued for peace. Rome then usurped all overseas territories and some of the ones in North Africa. Carthage would once again use trade to recover from the war it had just fought, but its trade empire expanding caused another war to break out with Rome from 149 to 146 BC. This time, Rome was under much harsher leadership, and they were on a killer path. They sailed to Carthage, burned it to the ground, killed all the soldiers, and enslaved the rest of the people. The raid was so serious that even after leveling the city, Romans plunged salt into the soil of Carthage, kind of as a lifeline curse that would make sure the land was never prosperous again. Of course, this isn't what actually occurred long term, but the symbolism of this is crazy because Rome was very focused on destroying this, and that symbol of the salt in the earth is just one of like truly cursing the land, which they had not done often before. So after the Third Punic War, Rome officially took over Carthage and the areas around it, so pretty much all of modern Tunisia, and they expanded all the Roman things you'd expect. There was great advancements in technology because aqueducts, new systems of sanitization, government, all that came here. There was great architecture built up. The agriculture was advanced. Rights for the people became more voting-based than monarchy because Rome doesn't like kings. And all that comes, but of course there is the fact that there's a lot of conscription, a big part of Rome, and the whole system behind the legionnaires and the whole army was that pretty much anyone they defeated they took the survivors and made them into Romans to fight on the front lines. So that's how they got such a huge army that expanded across the Mediterranean. So they got that. But, of course, not everything lasts forever. And as the Western Roman Empire started to fall, the Vandals, who were a Germanic people group, started to move into the region. And they were able to fully take over Tunisia from 435 to 534. But Rome was not fully dead because the Eastern Roman Empire, known as Byzantium, rose to power and was now trying to reunify what was once the Great Roman Empire. And their influence in Tunisia began in 1533, when the Romans started to lead that march across and actually challenge the rule of the Vandals and anyone else in their way. Christianity was spread across the region, and Roman-style advancements kept on coming. 
the long since destroyed Carthage was reestablished as Tunes by the Byzantines, and it was made into a trade hub that connected the inland cities to the water. Byzantine rule lasted for over a century, but things would start to shift. Islam started to spread across the region, and with it came the influence of Islamic Arabic caliphates. Uqba ibn Nafi commanded the Arabic army that occupied Tunisia in 670, and in 674, Uqba founded the town of Cairoan, which became the first center of Arab administration in the Maghreb. And it would be under the Rashan Caliphate that the entire area is officially conquered from the Eastern Romans, and the Carthaginians resisted the Arabs, but it wasn't successful, and we would now see a time of a lot of different Umayyad Caliphates coming in and out. Then we would see the Umayyad Caliphate replace the Rashan Caliphate in North Africa. The Umayyads sent a large force to Carthage and burned it to the ground in a similar fashion that Romans did in the years past. The Umayyads officially took over in 1705. Arabic became the official language and Islam the official religion for the region. The city of Tunes became Tunis as the Arabic began to influence the land. Abbasids came to power and overthrew the Umayyads not long after. This established the Aghabid dynasty, specifically in Tunisia, because it was kind of like a sect of the greater Abbasid empire. And one of the most famous men from this dynasty is Ibrahim II, who lived from 850 to 902. He inherited the emir of the Aghabids in Tunisia after a plague hit the nation and killed his brother. There were a lot of protests because of the quality of life since the plague, and Ibrahim II allied with the nobles to buy a huge slave army for the region. He was also a nutcase. The stories go on and on, but some of the crazy ones were that he discovered a plot to assassinate him, so he had all the male servants in his palace assassinated. This was north of 100 guys. His mother gifted him a band of female slaves, and he regifted her a box of every one of their severed heads. He also routinely killed any daughter he had because he wanted only male heirs. He would send them off a waterfall as babies and Somehow, he still missed some because he was having so many children that some of the girls that survived to be 16 or 18 would be thrown at a birthday party and then would be killed. One time, he also found silverware out of place in his palace and executed 300 servants all in the palace. So, because of his rule, Tunisia became very scary for anyone to mess with because this Aglabid dynasty was clearly aggressive People were not messing with Tunisia right now because it's just, why would you? Why would you? Nobody wanted to get in the way of this guy because the whole thought was if he would do this to his own family and friends and servants, what would he do to those that are on the opposition to him? So Tunisia, despite all this craziness, was kind of at peace for a while here. But Ibrahim did not stand with this because he had an idea of expansion. His plan was to defeat Byzantium in Constantinople, also on the way there, he would defeat the Italian city-states, burn Rome to the ground, defeat the Eastern Franks, defeat the Balkans, and then march into Bulgaria and defeat all the Thracians. So he actually tries to make this happen. He sails across the Mediterranean with a huge army, and right in the midst of this campaign, he ends up getting sick, and he dies of dysentery. And I know that sounds like the Oregon Trail, but it's very much true. And that's literally it. That's it. He's done. Pretty much everyone moves back from the Italian campaign. They go back to Tunisia, which it is Tunisia now because once Arabic starts to influence the language of the land, like becomes the main language of the land, Tunes becomes Tunis, and it's with that that they kind of expand the whole land to be called Tunisia. So I'm going to be using that term for pretty much the rest of it because it's actually when it was used. So once people got back to Tunisia, they were done, and they just moved on to the next thing. And for this country, it was the Shia Fatimids. 
They took power around 900 CE and established a dynasty that lasted until probably the mid-1100s, and they spread their influence through warfare in North Africa. They made the capital of their empire, Cairo, Egypt, and really tried to influence the land as much as they could. They had this different sect of Islam, so the Shia practices started to come into the land, but even though it influenced some people, it wouldn't catch fire that well because of the fact that different powers would come in after. One of those would be the Amazir Zirids, who were a group of indigenous Amazir that formed into one entity. They established an autonomous state separate from the Fatimids in the 1040s CE. And then the Normans would make their mark on the land in 1135. This is when the Kingdom of Africa was established in the city of Tunis, and it expanded over the land that makes up modern Tunisia. It was short-lived, but it was still kind of the earliest time we saw that term used, and eventually, after the 30 years the Normans were in power, the Almohads would defeat them around the 1160s, and the Almohads would start to use Ifriqiya, kind of similar to Africa, as the name for the kind of greater region here, and eventually it would spread to the entire continent. So Africa kind of gets its base, like the name, from Tunisia, which is very interesting. And the Almohads encapsulated the region into its control fully by 1160, and the Almohads invested heavily in the development of cities in Tunisia, including Tunis. They undertook various construction projects, including the construction, fortifications, and creations of mosques and palaces. These architectural developments left a lasting impact on the region's cultural and architectural heritage. The Caliphate faced widespread revolutions, and in Tunis, it was the Hafsids that wanted powers for themselves. But at the same time, Crusades were launched in 1270 and again in 1340, but they weren't very successful. And these are named the Barbary Crusades because the ones in 1390 were launched by Genoans and French against the Barbary pirates of North Africa. And the Crusades failed to take power, and the piracy kind of continued. I tend to avoid using the term Berber because that's kind of one that was placed on the people here from outside powers, both Arabic and European, where Amazir is kind of a more all-encompassing term and is the one that people from this region today, the ones that claim to be truly native to this land, prefer the term Amazir. So we're going with that instead of Berber because you kind of just have to translate in your head where anytime you've heard Berber pirates, Barbary Coast, any of that, it's like the Amazirs who did that. It's the same people, but Amazir is the proper term, not the one that was kind of like thrust upon them by people who just looked at them and were like, oh yeah, darker skin than me? Here's your name. So we're going to try to avoid that. It's just like how with Papua New Guinea, it was like they just saw people who were dark and were like, oh, you got to be the same as Africans for sure. Like I said before, typical Europe. So we're trying to sway away from that because that's just not accurate. And not long after the Crusades failed to take over, the Ottoman Empire succeeded. They fully took over in 1574 and remained in power till 1830. The Ottomans also conquered Algeria and made it into a part of the Ottoman Empire at the same time, and that's a big reason why Tunisia and Algeria relate so well is because they go through a lot of the same things for the next two, three hundred years, and kind of always have, even when they were administered separately, which is going to happen from now and different points in the future, so just keep that in mind. We're not going to mention Algeria much, but they're going through a lot that Tunisia is as well. The Ottomans, when in power, actually established a provincial system known as the Governance of Tunisia. A local governor known as the Bey was appointed to administer the region on behalf of the Ottoman Empire, and the Bey was responsible for both civil and military matters. The highest authority in Tunisia under the rule of the Ottoman government was of the Algiers. Tunisia was initially part of the larger Ottoman Regency of Algiers, which also included present-day Algeria. The local Bey of Tunis had a significant degree of autonomy in governing the region, but he was expected to pay tribute and provide troops to the Ottoman authorities in Algiers and in their other affairs. 
Ottoman rule had an impact on Tunisia's economy. The Ottomans encouraged trade and agriculture, and they also promoted the development of urban centers. This is why a lot of cities outside of Tunis get developed. Tunis served as a significant trade hub in the Mediterranean during this period, which benefited from its strategic location as a low-lying port right next to the Mediterranean. But once it got to the 1800s, the Ottomans were starting to lose grip over their North African colonies, and in 1830, the French took advantage of this. It was in this year that the French invaded Algeria and Tunisia. They forced an Ottoman retreat and left Tunisia, so France moved right in and took it for themselves. The Beylik of Tunis was created at this time because Algeria was made an official colony of France. Tunisia was pretty much independent at the time. 1837, Tunisia crowned Bey Ahmad as a new leader. He wanted above all else to advance the military and naval capabilities of the Beylik. He also wanted to increase the infrastructure overall. But this launched the nation into a huge debt that would haunt the nation for generations. In 1840, the French started constructing a church in Tunis to honor the King Louis IX. This was part of a promise from France not to invade Tunisia, but the French still wanted their influence there. And this is when we see the construction of a very famous structure in Tunisia, which we'll get into soon. Bey Muhammad II succeeded his brother as Bey in 1855 and held this power until 1859. He gave religious freedom to all his people, but he died in 1859, and this caused the power to shift to his brother, Bey Sadiq. In 1861, Bey Sadiq made the first legal contribution to the country and created the first constitution in the Arab world. It was modeled after the U.S. three-branch system, and he also shifted the country to more of a market economy where anyone could buy things and sell things legally. He enacted conscription for all men to be served for eight years. And this greatly upset the people who enjoyed the peacetime of the nation. So, in 1864, a civil war broke out. And in this conflict, Bey Sadiq hired the Zuawa, who were the fighting force of the Algerian mercenaries. And the fighting was most prominent in the countryside, which was occupied by the rebel forces. And... France stationed an army between Algeria and Tunisia to handle the conflict if it escalated and kind of spilled into Algeria. After this, Bey Sadiq took loans out from France, Egypt, and Istanbul, and this plunged the nation farther into debt, which caused them to take out loans to pay the debts, and just, just they kept digging the debt deeper and deeper. And it made it very hard for Tunisia to advance at all because so much of their money was going towards France. Around 1880, France wanted more control over Tunisia. The French... Alleged that the, Fr the French alleged that their settlements in Algeria were raided by the Zawawa from Tunisia, even though it was the Zawawa that were hired by the French to fight their war in Tunisia. So, in April of 1881, 2,800 French soldiers marched out of Algeria and conquered all of northern Tunisia except for the city of Tunis itself. The city was surrounded in just a few days, and a surrender came very quickly to the French. The Treaty of Bardo was sent to Tunisian officials just days after the city was taken. The treaty was reluctantly accepted by Bey Sadiq, and it established the French Protector of Tunisia, which lasted from 1881 to 1956. This was met with huge resistance by half of the government and its supporters who felt betrayed by the treaty's passage. Nonetheless, the treaty removed all power from the Bey and gave it to the French. The southern part of Tunisia was never conquered because a rebellion was happening there, against the French, and they were never able to conquer it in that initial invasion. So because of this, over 4,000 soldiers were sent on a handful of fully metal battleships to handle the rebellion, and within a few weeks, the rebels surrendered, and Tunisia became a full territory of France. Within just a few years of this, King Louis IX's Cathedral was completed in 1890 and represented the true mark of French rule. 
this is the thing I was talking about before, kind of the big mark they leave, is this massive cathedral right in the heart of Tunisia. It's absolutely massive, and of course, it's like a Christian cathedral, which is not the common religion here. So it's very shady from them, and it's kind of the thing to honor King Louis the Ninth, who was someone who tried to invade Tunisia back with the Normans ages ago. So it's kind of this weird, like France won in the end, but things don't stay that way because World War Two breaks out. During World War II, Nazi Germany invaded and conquered Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. They occupied the region until they were ousted by the Allies. Nazi rule was terrible here. People were killed routinely, concentration camps were set up, and the fact that the whole area was used so much as a battleground meant that a lot of innocent people were dying even outside of just the concentration camps and all those horrible things because these lands weren't treated with any respect. Bombs were shot everywhere. People fought on them. Guns fire, all that. It was really bad. But eventually, France was able to liberate the region, reestablish control of Algeria and Tunisia, and this rolls us into the post-war period, where France started to relinquish its ties to Tunisia so it could really double down on control over Algeria, because World War II is kind of that marking point where everyone wants to stop their empires, quote-unquote, that is, because Britain still has islands all over the world, the U.S. still has trust territories, all sorts of things like that. So does France and Spain. So they let go of their empire in Africa, but there's still a lot of areas that are controlled. But the thing with France was they were willing to let go of Tunisia so that they could hold on to Algeria, which was the much more prosperous colony, and they were going to use it to get all the benefit they could out of it. Following this, Muhammad VIII, a descendant of Bey Sadiq, was the last Bey of Tunisia until 1856, when he became the first and only king of Tunisia. The people saw him as a power-hungry leader and a resistance mounted against him. The resistance ousted him from power, and then the same people declared Tunisia independent. Tunisia became fully independent on March 20th, 1956. One of the men who led this was Habib Bourguiba. He was elected the first president for his significant pull during the independence movement. During his rule, women's rights, on top of the other things that Bourguiba achieved, one of the main things done under Bourguiba was his really big women's rights activism. He instituted policies that allowed women to refuse to be in polygamous relationships. He gave women the right to file for divorce, be able to obtain free or affordable abortions, and most of all, he gave women the right to vote, which they had not had at any point in their history so far. The monarchy ended in 1957 when Tunisia was declared as a republic. But things were not all great. In 1961, the French were forced to leave their last military base, but they refused. This caused a battle between the Tunisians and the French to be fought over the next two years. And the fighting was very tense. It went back and forth and sometimes spilled into pretty populated urban areas. And in 1963, peace talks were successful and France fully pulled out of the country. After this, Zine El Abdin Ben Ali who served as prime minister under Bourguiba, was the man who led the peaceful coup against Bourguiba. This was done because Bourguiba was starting to get old and wasn't ruling the country to its standard. So Ben Ali became president, and his presidency lasted for 24 years. He had a very restrictive regime that censored the press, eliminated freedom of speech, and was undoubtedly corrupt. This way of rule caused Tunisia to be blackballed by many other countries, and this in turn weakened the economy, which became very unstable. One of the famous stories of retaliation in extreme manners against the Ben Ali presidency comes from Mohamed Bouzezi. Bouzezi was a street vendor that was outraged by the increasing cost of living and the drop in quality of life. This meant that even though he was selling his goods that used to be able to feed him and his family, 
which was very large, he was now unable to because of prices going up and all sorts of quality of life things becoming unaffordable. So, on December 17th, 2010, Mohammed set himself on fire as a demonstration against his life under the abuse of government. Over the next month, word of his actions would spread to the capital Tunis and from there spread across the Arabic world. On January 14th, 2011, thousands of protesters would hit the capital of Tunisia and start the Tunisian Revolution. This went on for days. The Tunisian Revolution, also known as the Jassin Revolution, resulted in Ben Ali fleeing the country with his wife permanently. This revolution is recognized as the start of the Arab Spring. And if you don't know, the Arab Spring is the name given to the revolutions that occurred across the Maghreb in the 2010s, and that's the region of pretty much North Africa into most of the Middle East. And some of the most significant places this occurred was Libya, Syria, Egypt, and Yemen. All of them kind of meant that their leader was ousted and autocratic regimes were meant to be no more. And this succeeded here, so for the next 10 years, Things would be pretty great for Tunisia politically. There would be a lot of elections that go fine. Things weren't great economically because they were still recovering from old debts and the wars and all those things. But when it came to stability, things were doing pretty well. But that kind of started to shift. When President Kais Saeed came to power in the late 2010s, he wanted to rewrite the constitution in order to give himself more powers under the clause of emergency measures. Using these emergency measures, he disbanded the government's legislation in 2022. Then he tried to hold referendums to change the parliament, but voter turnout was unreasonably low because of the corruption that everyone saw. And this goes on and on. He tried different referendums to try and change the country, try and make things completely different. He wanted to hold on to power as tightly as he could, but it just wasn't working right. So, so things continue to be very shady for quite a while, but the country does try to adjust, and that pretty much gets us to the present. Where currently, the country is reeling from political strife and the moves made by President Said. The economy is okay, but not great, because unemployment has risen in the last few years to around 15%, which is higher than Tunisia wants to see. Tunisia today has a medium level of human development. Tunisia has battled through centuries of ups and downs, and none more so than the last two decades. Tunisia has battled through the centuries, and none more have been harder than the last two centuries. Despite all this, the rich culture of Tunisia is not to be forgotten, and neither should the pride of its people. Tunisia is unique to a lot of places, because even when you ask a Tunisian what defines a Tunisian, you're going to get a very wide-ranging answer. They've got an influence from the Mediterranean, there's huge connection to the Amazir past, there's a lot of connection to the Arabic world, there's so many things that happen in Tunisia. The country is mostly Muslim. But on top of this, there is so much. Like I said, they consume pasta the same way Italians do. They have influence from the French in their language and in the way their buildings are designed, the way their country flows. There are so many things that make Tunisia unique, and they exemplify that every day, kind of with the way they're pushing through, despite the fact that things have been very tough for them these last few decades and centuries. And that gets us to the very end, where I was to leave it with a takeaway, our mindset. And with this one, it's going to be... Taking all the best things from those that influence you and leave the rest behind. Now, it's going to kind of sound user-ish, but that's not what this is. I say that with Tunisia because culturally, militarily, and democratically, politically, all those things, Tunisia has kind of taken all those in from the different people that have been in power here, be it from all the way back with the Romans, with the technology and systems they brought, to the armies from the French, to the culture from the Ottomans, the different religions and languages from the Arabic caliphates, all of those things. They took in all of those, and despite having to suffer through a lot of things that were brought by these different powers, Tunisia eventually kept this culture and the things that came from the influence and left behind the actual leadership and abuse from these people. So, 
Tunisia kind of exemplifies taking all that in and not suffering with what comes with the rest of it. So I say you can do the same. You're going to have people in your life that may not be great for you, but they'll have some good influence. It could be a boss that even though he's not good to you, still helps you advance in work and learn new skills to make you a better person. You could have a relationship that doesn't work, but maybe they could teach you something about your love language or they could teach you about certain things you enjoy, don't enjoy, they could help you with things, even if they're not the partner for you. That can happen with friends where maybe they're great friends at one point, but they start to really affect you negatively. It doesn't mean you let go of all the things that you got from the friendship. You hold on to those still. So I say you can do that very similar to the Tunisia has because if you do, both you and Tunisia will have been through a lot, but learn from it and taken the best parts of it and use that to push forward who you are without staying with the toxicity that was there before. So I say be like Tunisia, take in the best and leave the rest behind. And that's going to be all. So I very much hope you guys enjoyed this one. Tunisia is very cool. It's kind of one that flies under the radar because not only is it ex- not only is it next to some African giants like Algeria and Libya, especially ones that appear in the news a lot because Gaddafi was in power in Libya for ages. Algeria is literally the geographically biggest country in Africa, and a lot of people have heard about the wars there from the French. But very few people actually know about what's going on in Tunisia or know what's going on there. Very glad we are now different from that, and we're getting to learn a lot. So it was a fun one. I love Carthage, love all that stuff. And it's definitely one I hope me, you, and everyone gets to see one day. So truly, thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and that was Tunisia. You guys have a good one.